Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come, but woe! to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet than to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Father, we do ask that as we go through what Jesus has said, as we look at the words of Jesus, the Son of God, that you would help us to understand the seriousness of our sin and how it affects others, and that we would take our sin more serious, not less serious, that we wouldn't give an excuse for our sin. Help us, God. We, we are the greatest and best excuse makers for our own sin. And so we ask for your help. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week in verses 1 through 4, we saw how Jesus defines greatness for us. Which, if we really think about it and we're being honest, the 21st century needs greatness defined. The church in the 21st century needs greatness defined. In the 21st century, we, we've, we've ad adopted this definition of greatness as having a high approval rating. They must be great because they have a high approval rating. Or as having influence over people. They must be doing something great because they have a lot of influence. Or, or having great power and status. They've conquered a lot of kingdoms, have won a lot of battles, so they must be great. You know, it's been interesting to see with the rise of social media, we're seeing this longing for greatness come out even more. We're seeing this longing for greatness displayed even more in people's hearts. Let me give you just a, a quick illustration. I had a friend growing up, I guess in college, so I was still growing up, still am growing up. Okay, back on track. Um, when he would post something to his social media accounts, he had a 30-minute limit, he said. If there weren't enough interactions in 30 minutes for him, then what he would do is he would go back in and he would delete that status because he didn't want anything on his social media that did not have a lot of interaction with. Didn't have likes, loves, whatever it is now, comments, views. And now I see some of your faces kind of going like, that's a bit silly. And it is. 
but it's his heart longing for that approval, that influence, that power. So say you don't have social media. Maybe it's not social media for you. Maybe it's approval from your friends and family. Influence and status with them. Your desire for their approval to be a great family member, a great friend. But it comes out as being a people pleaser and just trying to satisfy all of their needs and wants in the most unhealthy ways that you could imagine. Okay, maybe you're the type of person who has that very, I won't call it brash, but I guess I just did, very outgoing personality. You're the go-getter. You don't care if people like you or not. That greatness may come out in your heart as wanting power and status over a group of people. So you look at your coworkers and say, you know, I don't care if my coworkers like me or not. Because one day I'm going to be the boss of them and then they're going to have to like me. Or maybe it comes out with our kids saying, you don't have to like me, but I'm your parent. You need to listen to me. You see, the hearts of mankind is sick with sin. Which produces selfish ambition, whether in large groups, small groups, family groups, small groups, whatever. These ambitions in our heart are rooted in this desire to be greatness, to have the head seat at the table. But Jesus, he defined greatness for us as having childlike humility. What this looks like is having dependence on God. Just like a child is dependent on their parents, greatness, according to Jesus, in the kingdom of heaven, is having enough humility to depend on God for your accomplishments, for your everyday life, for your needs and for your wants. And so what we need to know today about our passage as we dive into it is that our passage today is continuing the thought of this question that the disciples asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, who is the greatest? Jesus, he's starting another, he's starting another conversation, another teaching with his disciples. He's unpacking this idea of what it looks like to have childlike humility. He's unpacking for us and teaching us what it looks like to be great in his kingdom. And this morning, what we're going to see specifically is that you can love God's children well by taking your own sins serious. You can love the brothers and sisters, Christians, well by taking your own sin serious. And we're going to see this first by Jesus' call to love Christians. Then we'll see, second, his judgment pronounced on the world. And then third, we will see his call to take your own sin serious. So let's look at verses 5 and 6, because verses 5 and 6, they, they act as a promise warning. When you do this, you receive this. 
But be careful to do this, because if you do this, then this will be the consequence, or should be the consequence, or it would be better that this were the consequence. We see in verses 5 and 6, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So let's look at this first, uh, the, the promise first. Since Jesus is continuing his thought about childlike humility, he's not talking specifically about children here. He's talking about the child of God. He's talking about Christians, disciples, followers of Jesus. And this promise right here, it's no different than any other promise in the Bible. It's no different than when the Lord promises that his mercies are new every morning. It's, it's the, the promise is still the promise. It's, it's no different than when he told Abraham that through your offspring there would be a blessing to the nations. This promise right here is no different than the other promise. Whoever receives or welcomes one such child welcomes me. So what Jesus is saying is very simple. This promise is a very simple promise. It's very straightforward. That is that we are to welcome in Christians. We're to welcome in the child of God. We're to receive them. It's our job as God's family to welcome in the family member. Because when we, we do this, Jesus says we're not just welcoming in the family member, we're not just welcoming in the brother or sister, but we're welcoming Jesus in himself. Or as Jesus says in, in Matthew 10.40, he says, whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. So when we welcome in or receive the child of God, the, the Christian, the brother or sister, we are welcoming in God himself. But in our pride and arrogance and ego and pursuit of greatness, whether small or large, we so quickly neglect this call. We get comfortable with the people that we're around, not realizing that our own selfishness and sinfulness is at work. We love the greatness that we've established in a small group, our small church. And so instead of welcoming in the Christian, truly, lovingly welcoming them in, we become skeptical. And we want them to prove to us why we should welcome them in. We take on this posture that instead of us going out of our way to welcome them in, they should go out of their way to welcome us in. This is why Jesus is about to warn the disciples. Because when we stop welcoming in the Christian, when we stop receiving them, what's happened is that we have redefined greatness back to what the world defines it as. 
Instead of taking on the childlike humility posture of the greatness Jesus has defined, we so quickly go back to the way the world has defined greatness. And so like the promise, the warning is clear for us. That is, the Christian should not cause the child of God or another Christian to stumble, to sin. What Jesus is teaching his disciples here is that you should not intentionally cause or tempt another Christian to sin. And Jesus is so serious about this that he says it would be you would be better off dead than alive than to intentionally cause another Christian to sin. Brother, sister, it is a serious matter to Jesus to tempt another to sin. Paul, he, he teaches us a little bit more why this is the case because Paul says, he warns, he warns the, the Corinthian church and, and he says, when you tempt another brother or sister into sin, you are not just tempting that brother or sister, you are actually sinning against Jesus himself. So do you realize that the sin that you are causing others, uh, when you are sinning against others, you are actually sinning against Jesus himself? Let me illustrate it like this for us. At least attempt to. If a family member that you haven't seen in a while comes knocking on your door, what would you do? They just show up unannounced. You haven't seen them in years. Would you look at them strangely and then shut the door right in their face? Or pull up your phone and look at your ring app, your doorbell app, and just pretend that you're not home? Would you welcome them in, but then give them the cold shoulder and not be interested in them? Would you allow them to come in, but not talk to them until they proved with identification in a family tree that they actually are your family member? Would you make them earn your respect before serving them and caring for them? Of course you wouldn't do that. At least I don't think you would do that. Even with the most difficult family members, you probably wouldn't do that. So then why would we do that with our eternal family? Why would we do that with our family that we are going to spend eternity with? Our pride. Our pride and ego of wanting to be great prevents us from doing that. We don't welcome in the brother or sister into our lives because we still internally believe that we are greater than them. So we turn away. And we walk back to the chair at the head of the table. 
waiting for them to prove themselves to us. What we do is we reject them. And our rejection of them very well may lead them to temptation. Am I worthy of love? They claim to be a brother or sister, and yet it doesn't seem like they're very loving to me. I tried hanging out around this place for a while. I even mentioned different ways of how I'm suffering and might need service, and yet it went unnoticed. So we must love one another. And as Jesus says, we must offer them a cup of water. We must serve those that we welcome in. Because when we serve those that we welcome in, when we love those that we welcome in, and we give them that cup of water, Jesus, he tells his disciples that you will not lose your reward. So practically speaking, what does this welcoming the child look like? It means you being the one going out of the way to approach them. This isn't here, this is here. So there is a stupid saying, respect is not given, it's earned. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It means taking them out to lunch. It means asking them over for dinner. If you can't do that, it means listening to their story, actually listening to their story, and then asking them, how is God growing you? How might I practically today, this week, this month, serve you and your family? How can I help with your needs? How can I carry your burdens? To be great in the kingdom, we must kill our egos. We must kill this desire to be great in our own lives and serve and love our eternal family members. Church, what that means for us is that any new person that walks through this door, a new person should have overwhelming amounts of invites to go out to lunch or come over for dinner or go for a walk. It means we welcome them in as if they are our family. But this ego... To want to be great resides in all of us. This is actually the ego that sanctification is killing. Because this, this ego is in our hearts long before we become Christians. This ego can be found, this desire for greatness can be found even in the smallest of kids. And this is why Jesus pronounces judgment on the world. 
This is why he speaks judgment on the world. We read in verse 7, Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, now we may not get the full gravity of that sentence, or, or of those few sentences of verse 7. We may not get the weight of what Jesus is really saying right here. But what Jesus is doing is he's pronouncing judgment on the world, and then he's pronouncing judgment on the individual. Two times he uses this small yet powerful three-letter word, woe. When Jesus uses this word, woe, it's not like, woe, dude. He's pronouncing a curse. He's pronouncing judgment, divine judgment. And he's doing it to the world and he's doing it to the individual. We see first that Jesus uses woe to speak judgment on the world and its depravity. This is the the type of depravity where God looks out in the world and he sees that every thought and inclination of man and women are stained with evil. That every desire that we have of even the, the noblest of deeds is stained with our own evil selfishness to want to be great in this world. This is our heart. This is mankind's heart. And so he pronounces this judgment upon the world because of this evil that has stained our hearts. Temptation will come. This is what he says. It is necessary. What he means here, Luke records Jesus saying it like this. Temptation is sure to come. Jesus is teaching his disciples that temptation in this world is inevitable. We, we feel this as Christians. The Christian heart feels this as we watch commercials. We, we listen to ads. We, we walk in the mall. We drive around the city. We see the temptation oozing from the world. We see this taking place in so many different ways. And so Jesus pronounces judgment upon the world. There is judgment on the world. But here's the caution of the second woe. Here is the second woe. Jesus specifically calls out the person who causes another person to sin. So let me maybe try saying it like this for us, so that way we can understand a little bit more of what Jesus is trying to say. We might even say that Jesus is saying this, judgment to the world for temptation to sin, and then he follows it up saying, judgment to the person whom temptation comes from. And when we read this, and when we really think about this, this should cause us to stop dead in our tracks. Reflect. And say, oh no. Let me illustrate what's going on this way. Say you get a letter in the mail and it's the same letter that everybody else in the valley and a little bit beyond has received. It's a letter to, be, uh, to, to come and stand before the judge. And the letter says, if you have caused anybody to break any law in the valley, you must 
go to prison. And it says, we've been watching you. We know the laws. Even if you have caused, even if you parked over a crosswalk and you caused a person to jaywalk is enough to send you to prison for life. None of us in the valley would be innocent. And this is exactly why when we read verse 7, we go, oh no. Because there's not one person in this room who has not tempted and caused another to sin. You have tempted somebody in your life to sin. Maybe you were in grade school and you were the lookout for your friends to steal the candy from your teacher's candy drawer. Or in college, you were the one handing out the beers to help people get wasted or passing the joint around. Or last week, you knew exactly what to say to your spouse in order to really get them going. Or maybe you were being vindictive and manipulative to one of your children, leading them to anger. Do you hear Christ's words maybe a little bit more personally? Judgment on you. Judgment on you for tempting others to sin. God's judgment is on you for tempting others to sin, which we are all guilty of. This is awful news for us. Our temptation or our sin against others condemns us. And God is just and right to send us to hell. This is what makes the good news of the gospel so incredible for us, though. This is what makes what Jesus came to accomplish such beautiful news to everybody in this room. This is what makes what Jesus accomplished so beautiful for the world. Is that Jesus, he, he lives the complete and perfect life, never causing another to sin. Never intentionally leading others into sin. He, he, he lives the complete and perfect life. And the judgment that we face for tempting others and causing others to sin, he faces in our place. He takes that punishment. 
He takes the full wrath of God, the full judgment of God that would take an eternity for us to experience. Jesus experiences it in six hours. And he raises on the third day and he receives the, the blessing of, of God and, and he does this so that way when you believe in him, when I believe in him, that we can't be forgiven, that we can have peace with him, that we can be completely forgiven of our sin, all of the ways that we have wronged God and wronged our neighbor and we can receive the, the right hand of fellowship with God. This is what he extends to us. And it's through our belief in Him that we receive this. Now, I don't know what you've done or how you've sinned against God and how you've sinned against others, but what I do know this is that there is no sin great enough that God cannot forgive. Come to Him. Come to Him right now and receive peace with Him. It's for this very reason why Jesus he is calling his disciples to take their sin serious. Because disciples of Jesus are to live differently than this world. In the last two verses, and if your right hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. What Jesus is saying here is, look, it would be better for you to walk with a limp into heaven than to stroll into hell. He's, he's saying it would be better for you to grope looking for heaven than to see with 20-20 vision what hell will look like. And we need to understand that Jesus, he's, he's trying to overemphasize what these disciples should do, what the twelve should do, what we should do. He's trying to overemphasize what they should do in order to love Christians and separate themselves from this world and the judgment that he spoke of. So if your hand, your foot, your eye, they cause you to sin, then either cut it off or pluck it out. Why is Jesus doing this? Because Jesus takes sin serious. He takes sinning against others serious. And because there are serious consequences and costs to sin. That is, if you don't take your sin serious, but continue to coddle your sin, you continue to hold them close to you, you will be thrown into the eternal fire of hell. See, it is written in God's word that when you trust in God, when you believe in God, God's spirit is poured into your heart. Not only is God's spirit poured into your heart, but the love of God has been poured into your heart. The love of God, that, uh, uh, a love that helps you and enables you to love God, and it helps and enables you to love your neighbor. So what this means and please listen, because this is the seriousness of sin. What this means is that if you are unwilling to take your sin serious and you treat your sin in a superficial manner, 
then it is a sign that God's love has not been poured into your heart. It is a sign that you may be able to articulate theological truths Or you may be able to say, I go to this church or I go to that Bible study, but please hear me say this warning. If you continue to treat your sin in a superficial manner, it is a sign that God's love has not truly been poured into your heart. If you have a friend who perpetually committed adultery on their spouse. And you had the guts to talk to them about it one time. You would tell them, friend, you don't actually love your spouse. Even if they went to the mountaintops and they shouted it, I love my spouse! and they still continued to commit adultery, you would look at them and tell them, friend, you do not truly love your spouse. If you did, you would be faithful. You see, when the love of God has been poured into our hearts, we stop adultery with God. Because we have been forgiven by God, we take our sin serious. So what sin are you coddling? What sin are you holding on to, unwilling to give up? Maybe your sin has tricked you into thinking that you can't give it up. It's too great to give up. Brother, sister, take Paul's encouragement that because you have the Spirit of God in you, by the Spirit you are able to put the death to death the deeds of the flesh. Your sin. You can and should Battle against your sin. Wage war against your sin. Crush your sin. Why? Because God's love has been poured into your heart. And because God's love has been poured into your heart, you can overcome sin. No matter how big. No matter how long it may take you how many times you may stumble or fall flat on your face, you can get back up. Maybe it's time to cut off that friendship. Maybe it's time to get off of social media and ask somebody to change your passwords for a season. Maybe those crude jokes you are making aren't people actually laughing with you, but they're uncomfortably laughing. And it's causing them to sin. Maybe it's time to ask someone for help. So as we conclude, 
as we finish up, I want to give two reasons why we take our sins serious. Because I, I said earlier that we love the child of God well by taking our own sins serious. So the first reason why we take our sins serious is our love for God. Because we've been forgiven of our sin, no longer do we sit here and try to earn God's love. We have God's love. And because we have God's love, we are able to love God by obeying Him. Our hearts, they should leap, they should dance, they should skip to obey God. We should read what David says in the Psalms, that I delight in your commandments and laws. And we should jump up with David and say, Amen. We should pursue godliness and holiness not for our own moral greatness, not to have an upper advantage on somebody else, but we should pursue godliness and holiness so that way we can have a deeper communion with God. And as you take your sin serious, I guarantee you that you will go into deeper places with God than you could, uh, that you couldn't even imagine. And the second reason, the second reason why you take your sin serious is to love other Christians, to love the family of God we have been indoctrinated with an individualistic culture. The only thing that matters in life is, is me and what's good for me. But this isn't what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying take your sins serious so that way you're able to love your brothers and sisters well. Do you realize that your sin doesn't just affect you personally, it affects those around you as well. This is a part of the, the purification and the sanctification that's taking place in our hearts. That we would be able to dwell in unity with one another. But because of our sin, it doesn't just affect us, it affects those around us. So to take your own sin serious, to truly take your own sin serious is actually to care about and love the person that you're sitting next to. The person that's sitting across the room from you. The person that's in your house with you. To take your own sin serious is to love the brother and sister well. Notice here how I'm concluding it doesn't have anything to do with our own morality. To take our sins serious isn't for our own puffing up, our own greatness. To take our sins serious is actually a very selfless thing to do in order to love God and to love our neighbor. Taking your sins serious has nothing really to do with you at all. It has everything to do with loving God and loving neighbor. I understand that this, this passage right here is deeply reflective. It's a, it's a deeply personal reflection and it's also a shared reflection. It's personal for us as individuals, but it's also shared for us as a church. 
and shared for us as having family members and co-workers. So we must start with the question, do you welcome in the Christian? Do you welcome in the brother? Do you welcome in the sister? Or is your personal sin a stumbling block to them? So let us love God and our fellow brothers and sisters well by taking our own sin serious. Let's pray. We thank you for your graciousness, Lord. We thank you for your love and mercy and for your faithfulness because our sin affects us in millions of ways that we don't even realize. Our sin affects those that we love in a million different ways that we don't realize. So help us, help us by the power of your spirit to see our sin, to confess our sin, and to repent of our sin so that we can love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.